call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 132 of Call It Friend, or the podcast where usually two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself, Andy J. Ritchie, and my co-host, Danica Tiernan, break down our best of 2023, and we pretty much managed to avoid spoilers in this one. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. You can find us on Instagram at Call Friend or Podcast. Drop us a line there if any feedback or recommendations. Also, find us on Letterboxd at AndyCIFPod and at Donica. Peace. All right, uh, this is our review of the year 2023. Unlike a bunch of faker podcasts, me and Andy waited until the year was absolutely done. <laughs> That's right, we did it. We're in 2024, <laughs> folks. Yeah, exactly. We're the only real day. ass podcasters out there. It is New Year's Day. Happy New Year's Day. Happy New Year's Day. Uh, so yeah, we're going to run through some categories of how we feel about the year in general. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the slightly disappointing. Most of the focus will, of course, be uh, on, um, you know, stuff that we tossed for the podcast but uh which category do you want to take out of the christmas hamper first there andy well i think we should do the rundown of the so basically the idea behind this episode is that we've we watch a lot of old films uh over the course of the year some of them are mm, okay i think the vast majority are probably for me about 3.5 Three and a half stars out of five uh, letterbox. I would say that's the average. If that's the average. They're normally them, decent because yeah. we normally don't pick absolutely awful things. So we normally just pick sort of slightly above average because yeah, sometimes we're we get awful by accident of, though of things that we haven't seen. That is true. So really, this is an opportunity for us to kind of direct people towards things that they might not have watched and. You know, I, I imagine a lot of people don't listen to every single episode of this because they're like, I don't know, I've never seen that film. And if that's your, if that's what you think, then you're wrong. You should force yourself to watch all the films, including yes, that's the ones the with Jonah Hill in them. I would like to say, if you're not doing that, you're you're doing it wrong. Yeah, get out. Thoroughly get out. <laughs> I Turn said your phone no. off now. Although I have to say, I have to say, this year I struggled to contain it into five movies. So I will have to give some shout outs. Uh, I've got one or two. I got my, I got my five, I got my big five and then I've got my two honorable mentions. You got two honorable mentions. That's good. I have two of those too. So I think we should probably just start, start from five and go towards one. What do we do if, if we both have the same film in different positions, we just let the one person talk about it. And then when it comes, we, I guess we can say, we can can say if it's on our list, a higher position or or we can say if it's not on our list, I suppose. Ooh, I have a fun idea. Oh no, it's not at that. I was going to say something silly, but some of our films will definitely overlap. Like I'm pretty sure we don't have the same number one. I'm, I'm sure of that. Well, it depends how you feel about uh, Richard Aoyadi's The Double. <laughs> so do you want to do the top five first or the other categories? Yeah, no, no, I think we start with the five and then get okay. into the, the year. Cool. That's how we you go first. Give me your five. My number five film is uh, a little Japanese classic from 1954 directed by Genji Mizuguchi, Sancho the Bailiff. Oh, wow. Sancho the Bailiff. Made it in at number five in my Made list. Made it in at number five. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll comment on that in a bit. I guess, first and foremost, when I see a film from 1954 and a Japanese film from 1954, when, like, when that's on the slate, when that's what I've been tasked to watch, I, my expectations are low. 
That's fair. And, and when I hear that something is a classic and it's amazing, normally with these type of films that are the sort of the big film nerd, film buff films, uh, you know, from You're over prepared. 70 years ago, I assume that... I assume that it's going to be something that was groundbreaking in its time that now probably doesn't hold up and maybe looks terrible. So as I say, going into this, I had such low expectations. I expected nothing. And I came away with a film that genuinely surprised me. First of all, the story is heartbreaking. Mm. You get a real insight. I mean, this is obviously, this story is obviously, it has real significance for Japanese culture. And it's something that from a Western perspective, it's, I mean, it's even to someone who's lived there, I have no idea about any of this, this history, this like uh, 11th century period. And um, yeah, I'm just uh, basically, I guess I was shocked that a film like this remains so powerful after such a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll reiterate a little when it comes to it. But one of the things that I remember striking me really is um, just how well made it is. Like I rec like I, I think it's one of the earliest films I can think of with such effective tracking shots. I remember that mm. from it. I remember like and the, how lived in the world seemed not stagey in the least like the woodlands. It's a very beautiful film to watch as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I was a, a huge fan. The, uh, my, my knocks against the Yakuza that we watched not that long ago, one of them was that its Western score was really, it really put me off. Obviously, this film mm. has like a classic Japanese score that, that fits, with the, uh, fits with the story and with the time period. Every single scene. Every single scene just had that same refrain going again and again and again. Yeah, yeah, it worked for me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, real depth. I mean, there's no spoiler. Again, no, no, no plot spoilers. But it's I can't stress how sad this film is. <laughs> I can't oh, stress yeah, it's that a real enough. It's like it's a heartbreaking, heartbreaking film. Yeah, um, but like not in yeah. a manipulative Nicholas no, 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 Sparks no. type way. Just really, yeah. But yeah, I think part out. of the point of it was was to point out the injustices in in society of that time which again i mean elements of that still carry on into the modern day for me it might as well have been in a fairyland i mean i know a little bit about the the history in that but like not a fairyland that's the wrong way of putting it, it like storyland as in but i i just generally just found the story like it's it's real poetic obviously I didn't think of the real life significance of it, of it at all. I just thought of like, you know, the sacrifice that she makes for her brother, basically, who's kind of being a dick. Um, and she just kind of does it because she she is the complete opposite of a dick. And then he has to spend the rest of his days kind of hoping he lives up to that sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Real sort of biblical stuff. It's very nice. There's something about Japanese storytelling where they're able to construct these almost like fables Mm. that are really effective and branch out like a smaller story just gets bigger and bigger especially like children of nobles who've lost their birthright and they have to try and reclaim that power that's it seems it's like quite a common trope in, in their storytelling but i can, i heartily recommend sancho the bailiff as do i more than andy as you'll see in a little bit yeah let's well, fine you want to hear my number five go my number five is 1967's Les Samurai, the Jean-Pierre Melville film. Now, you smile because most of the entries here on this list are what you would call a very typical Dunnecaternan joints. I'm here wearing my French Connection t-shirt. I like um, man movies that alienate women, <laughs> that kind of thing. And uh, 
I don't know. There's something very nice and alienating about uh, Samurai. It's almost wordless. On the strength of it, I watched his other two big movies, uh, Army of Shadows uh, and the, the Red Circle. I will say I probably prefer Army of Shadows, but it wasn't up for a toss pick. But that said, Samurai, I, I struggle to think of a film right now off the top of my head, though I'm sure there's one out there that's quite as cool as this film. It does not explain itself to you slightly. You watch what he's up to, to because so it's the story of um, basically a hitman who gets hired and certain things go awry. But you're watching for much of the film, you're just watching him go through his paces the way he would do his job, setting up certain things, talking to certain people with no narrative explanation whatsoever. It's the very definition of show don't tell. And then capped on top of that, you've got uh, Alan Delon, who uh, I remember there was a weird orgy story about him, but that's that's not uh, what we're talking about here today. He's the very epitome of cool in this film. I mean, it's kind of a throwback to like, you know, the way he's dressed is very 1940s and what what have you. But ultimately, you're doing that thing, which Andy and I love doing via watching movies. You're also time traveling to Paris in the late 60s, which is very, very nice to do, too. Uh, yeah, I was a big fan of this. How did you feel about it? Is it on your list? <laughs> this is my number four. Yeah. Well, then fire it back at me. We're on your four. Watching David Fincher's The Killer this year, you could see how important Le Samurai was for him and how influential it was because he basically chose to remake it in a more modern setting and a more modern telling. Yeah, that's fair. But it's such great visual storytelling. It's just man has has a plan. He has what he has to do. He goes step by step. We just follow him. Like you said, it's almost wordless. Yeah. So we're just following this hitman character around the city. Paris has never looked grimmer. Yeah. A huge part of it is is the setting. A lot of it is the music in a lot of films for me, and the setting is massive for these 60s, 70s, and 80s films. So uh, I really need to go and check out his other films. Yeah. Um, I w- yeah you, Army of Shadows particular... was one that I would had been meaning to watch. I think I put that up for a toss pick and... That's great. Um, I think you would really get a kick out of the Red Circle as well, because that's also one of those just like nobody said anything for the last seven minutes. (laughs) Like, what are we doing? It's like, and it's probably more complex than Le Samurai. Mm -hmm. Um, in that, like, it's definitely of that ilk. Whereas Army of Shadows seems like a more personal film to Melville. I mean, it is. He was literally in. He was in the Resistance himself. But yeah, yeah, huge props all round. Um, I think those are all his big films. So, uh, but I, I would happily uh, rewatch them also all. Also, Bob Le Flambeur. Oh yeah, which we which I watched also you uh, watched, around yeah. that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is uh, that's very much the um the cloth from which Sydney or Hard Eight, the Paul right. Thomas Anderson film, is cut from. Like it, it's very much based around that, which is it's great. It's a great film too, and you also get to do you know a nice little bit of time traveling to Grimace. I don't think it's Paris that I think it's Marseille, but uh, yeah, oh, yeah, even worse. Indeed, yeah, Marseille, Marseille holds up its grim <laughs> end of the bargain to this you day. You do that I, now, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly, just exactly. Uh, so is it on me to name a number four now? Yeah, go. Okay, so my number four is, yeah, it, this is like a film that was pretty much made for me um, this year. Uh, can, can you guess what that would be at all? No. Okay. So Friends it's, of uh, Eddie 90- Coyle? Almost. <laughs> almost there. That's actually one of my uh, special mentions. No, um, 1973's jo- uh, John Flynn's films, The Outfit, oh, which yeah. I 
got just a massive kick out of this i was is, watching this is that. not on my list at all as you yeah imagine. yeah yeah you were less <laughs> fond of it than me i was uh i was watching this going i can't believe i've never seen this before because it's <laughs> just ticks all my boxes it's so um so it's based on one of the parker novels i believe um the likes of which uh a point Blank and uh, Payback are also based yeah, on, on those books. That's the same novel, yeah. I would say it is uh, comfortably the best uh, of, of those three. I would stake my reputation on that. Robert Duval, maybe in my favorite Robert Duval role, I- including like Tom Hagen and Kilgore. And oh, I just think he is just really, really stunning in this. But Joe Don Baker as Cody, his mate who at the start owns a bar, is just having, everybody's having such terrific fun. They're all on good form. It's all there's real male camaraderie in it there's a fantastic shootout there's a few fantastic shootouts as i remember it has also got the line that made me laugh maybe most out of anything this year which is there's a scene in this where they stop off to get a car fixed up and uh, the wife of the mechanic <laughs> tries to have sex with joe don baker and he turns her down and then she claims she claims that um he uh, he raped her uh, or he tried to rape her and then um, your ma- the brother of the mechanic goes to die, relax. She offered it to me a few times as well. And she goes, yeah. you took it, <laughs> which is very good. It's also got a uh, very much friend of the show, maybe mascot of the show, uh, Tim Carey in a, in a very That's fine right. role. Very yeah, funny. yeah. He'll be appearing later in this list, no doubt. Mm. In both of our lists, I oh, would yeah, imagine. Yeah, 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 I would say Quentin Tarantino would disagree with me on this point. I would say it's better than the other big John Flynn film, uh, Rolling Thunder. Um, but those are very much cut from the same cloth as well. I'd recommend checking them both out. So, what do you got? Well, my number three film is a 1977 Wim Wenders film, The American Friend. Wow. Wasn't expecting that. That's out really? of left field. I was, yeah, I, was, yeah. I was a huge fan of that film. I do remember how enthusiastic you were for it now. That is, you know, I kind of glossed over it when I was looking over the year's films, but that is one that has stuck with me a lot just for how bloody odd it is. It's a very odd it's movie. very strange film. Well, I'm a big Tom Ripley and uh, Highsmith fan in general, fan of the mm. novels. I'm fan of the uh, 90s talented Mr. Ripley film adaptation. And I think I'd, I'd seen... I'd seen the imagery of this. I, I'd seen, or I'd, I'd always known that there was like a Dennis Hopper, Tom Ripley film. And just, I'd always thought like, how the hell can Dennis Hopper play that character? It just doesn't make sense. And then you watch the film and you go, oh yeah, that's right. He's not playing that character. <laughs> He's yeah, yeah, playing, yeah. <laughs> Vendors has created like a completely different character. It, it, it goes Very so strange. far away from the uh, novel series that you're, you're following something completely different. And this that, is like, this is a 1970s gritty thriller, but with this indie art house feel to it. Mm. And again, you've got Hamburg, you've got New York in the 1970s. It looks yeah. amazing. Bruno Ganz uh, gives a great performance. There's, there's certain images are, are, again, seared into my brain. Dennis Hopper walking along the side of the raised freeway yeah. in like Brooklyn, I think it is. Bruno Ganz on the metro. No one shoots location like Vim Vendors. That week, we also watched Alice in the City, which which just takes you on a trip around Europe. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, yeah. Good shout. I think uh, it was harder to get hold of this years ago. I think, I feel like Vendors is back into the public consciousness. When I was in Barcelona this year, they they were celebrating him as part of a film festival, I remember. And it was just like, I've seen, I see Vendors everywhere right now. So I feel like this is kind of, 
come back a bit is easier to get hold of anyway. And I would definitely recommend checking it out if you want to see something gritty in seventies and just odd. <laughs> yeah, the the scene at the end where there's kind of a shootout and Ripley is sort of helping out Bruno, Bruno Ganz's character <laughs> from the mad. outside of the house. It's <laughs> yes. it's yeah, it's it's daft because it's the, very the, weird. By that point in the story, I I think Bruno Ganz's wife has left him. Maybe is that the case? I don't know. I think let's, so. let's let's stay away from plot points on these. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah, I would recommend that one. Yeah, and it, yeah. it got by me in my listing. Okay, number three. I have a feeling this will appear on yours. Also, my it is. Um, I'm going to say the 1980 Paul Schrader film, Mishima: A Life in Four Chapters. 1985. 1985. Does this feature in yours? It does. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it would. God, I mean, they're they're all good movies, except yeah. for the outfit, apparently. Um, yeah, yeah, not many wildcards from us here, but um, when where does it feature in yours? Is that uh, a... it's the next one? It's number two. All oh, right, okay. So you've said you're all oh, right. So we might as well break into open discussion here. Uh, yeah, I've been I had been meaning to watch this for a long time. I had always this is the only time this has ever happened to me. I had been a a huge fan of the score and had listened yeah. to it many, many, many times. The Philip Glass score. It's very typical Philip Glass. It's the same themes over and over again, slightly changed yeah. by their. But I always. I, I, and But yeah, there's like there's this one, I think it's called uh, Kyoto's Room or something like that. A very nice twangy guitar one that I, mm. I come back to an awful lot. But. Um, yeah, the, I thought the the score was great, but it couldn't have quite prepared me for this. I had always thought this was just an an odd. It's it's such an odd thing for Paul Schrader to have made or to have gotten made at all. Like it it was made by the um, I think Coppola's company bankrolled bankrolled this, which is you know it's because it's an odd ass movie. So it's basically it's the story of this poet writer Mishima, true story, a Japanese guy who became sort of. Um, very upset by the uh, emasculization, you could say, of um, Japanese culture and decided to do something about it and sort of become a, a proto... <laughs> Rogan. Uh, the Japanese Joe Rogan. No, no, I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah, he, he jr up. up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. He got himself <laughs> a cold all plunge. <laughs> um, Mishima life up, in four chapters all day. Took up archery. That. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, and so then it's they do this wonderful thing where they cut between... His life in general, his, they'll take you through his life story. The final day of his life when he took over a military compound in, in an, a very pathetically attempted coup. And then these very odd arty sequences where they um, show, cha uh, show pieces from his novels or his short stories and how they pertain to. I mean, it's a writer writing about writing. And catharsis. It's fascinating. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. I don't think there is anything like it. I think when I saw images of this film years ago, I just thought it looked like the most boring, slow. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. hard to. Is it, that does seem harsh to judge just from a still image and go like, oh my god, that looks like it must be the slowest thing ever. But mm. it's really not. I think the score does a lot of the heavy lifting there, but. You've got this biopic, but it delves into every single aspect of this person's life. The truth, their art, and the crazy twist of where they ended up. And it's, terrific it, performances I can't think all of, around I mean, as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just, that structure is so bold. Yeah. It's a really brave way to, to take on someone's life, but also to try and get all of their art and what they wanted to say in there too. And it's someone who changed so much over the course of his life. I mean, and a lot of it was in response to the uh, Second World War. There's, um, 
I, I heard in an interview with Paul Schrader once, he used to teach screenwriting and he would get people to say, come in and think about their, like, you know, one of their personality defining secrets and come back the next day and find three metaphors to uh, to summon up. And then he said, he w- then he, w- he would follow up on the exercise and say, find three real life stories in which to, you know, shape the metaphors around. And, you know, that's like, because it, it was about biopics. And uh, yeah, I, I just think, I mean, this is so obviously, you know, it, it, it's a story that Paul Schrader really connected to. If you uh, know anything about his life, his sort of fanatic religious upbringing, and then later discovering cinema and trying to find ha- out who he was that way. Uh, American Gigolo, Light Sleeper, those are supposed to be very much ciphers for uh, Schrader. And I just think he found, like, I mean, we spoke about it recently with the Yakuza episode. He heard about Mishima through his brother who draft dodged to Japan and actually met Mishima. Um, Leonard Schrader met him and and that story spoke to Schrader in this odd way. I mean, way to give somebody a glimpse of the inside of your head, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like it's... Schrader's still cr- out here posting about films. He's on Twitter <laughs> talking about the films of the year. Oh, really? What's his film of the year? Man. I, think, I can't remember. I think oh, I think it might be Master Gardener. I swear he put his he put his own his, film. He put his own film in the top five anyway. <laughs> I mean, that's I bold. Genius. Yeah, I think that's genius. <laughs> well done. Well played. Why not? Fair play. Fair play. Might as well. so you want to you want to hear my number two? Go. Okay, oh wait. So yeah, I don't know if I have anything else to add about. I would just say that Philip Glass score. Obviously, you would listen to that first, and then you watch the film. But I, I can see why because yeah. it's it's one of the best that comes to mind. It really anyway, stands apart. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, good news for the way the structure's been running. I'm pretty sure I'm about to name your number one. Yeah, I think so. My number two is the killing of a Chinese bookie, the yeah, John yeah, Cassavetes yeah. film. Absolutely. That's your number one. Yep. Ben Gazzara, Tim Carey. Ben Gazzara also features a co-lead in uh, one of my honorable mentions. I have, mm-hmm. uh, but like, it's got to be said. We've said this already today, but there I don't I've never seen a film like this, but I had never seen anything like this before I saw it. I, I it's difficult to describe to people this film. It is. Um, I, I wouldn't know where to start. It also we watched different versions of this film. That's another key point. Yeah, that's right. So I've seen like another almost half an hour of more of, of extra. So I don't even know what's missing from your one or what's extra in mine. If I'm right, it, your thing is uh, it's more performance, I believe. The, right. the other cut, more of the. It, what's the name of the guy, Mister? Mister Sophistication. <laughs> Mister Sophistication who works in like a kind of uh, strip joint. Yeah, and yeah. He's like the sort of house MC type guy. He's up on stage, and we're we're shooting a, a tiny bit too much breeze here. So I would just say beforehand. If for people who don't know John Cassavetes' films, they're largely improv, uh, improved, but you know, not in a Mike Lay kind of way. There's a there is a script to work with, and there was always been, but he was always much more interested in focusing on performance. The, he he plans no blocking whatsoever, and all of his films have a tendency to showcase some absolute creatures of people, like. <laughs> Over the course of the last year, like there are, there's a certain type of actor that he enjoyed working with. Loads of them appear in this because loads of the same guys appear in loads of his films. It's just the way it sort of worked out. Seymour Castle, Timothy Gary, Ben Gazzara. He just liked odd sort of dudes and faces and stuff, and like people who could show up as real and gritty. And Cassavetes himself looks like a bit of a madman yes, when you see him and stuff. I mean, was a bit of a madman. The story itself: guy gets into debt. Guy is told to clear debt by killing a Chinese bookie. 
and he wants to do it because he's passionate about keeping his striptease slash cabaret <laughs> arty show open. So he goes on this odyssey and we just follow along the way. And for all the looseness with which it's told, it's as gripping as anything. You just can't take your eyes off this film. I just, I mean, like you said, I can't think of anything else similar to it. It has this crime plot, but that's kind of in the background. It's mostly about the characters and the place. It's just like a, a film that's so clearly of its time. It's completely grounded in this gritty 1970s L.A. Yeah, I just I just loved it. Again, it's another one of these films where my my expectations were very low. I was expecting almost nothing, and now this is in my top four films of all time. I mean, that's where I've placed yeah. it in my Letterboxd top that. four. It's a film that I know I'll definitely watch again many times. Like I'd happily, I'd like to watch the shorter version as well and see what that changes. See what you prefer. Yeah, two scenes uh, really strike out to me in my, in my memory. The scene of the blowout, when his car has a blowout in the middle of the freeway, is, I, I can't remember ever seeing anything like that in a movie, the way that's handled. The <laughs> car literally across the road. <laughs> just running, dodging in and out of cars, and what for sure is a real freeway. Real, yeah, absolutely. It just looks like they didn't even bother like shutting down for filming or anything. I'm sure they didn't. Insane. I mean, it's men- mental. And then the other one is, basically, Ben Gazira's, you know, his life is on a short line at this point. And then all of a sudden there's this scene where it's kind of like a staff meeting for the strip club where Mr. Sophistication is giving out that none of the other performers uh, respect him. And uh, Ben Gazira's character is just, like listening and sort of maintaining the room and composure. And it's very, the then the message of the sort of film emerges, which is kind of the show must go on. <laughs> that That's kind of the way, like... No matter, no matter what, his art is what's most important to him. And it doesn't really matter what other people think of his odd little art. That's the thing. And he would die for it. And he's dying at the end of the movie. Spoilers, guys. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Really you can't just kill a something Chinese spooky and then walk away. It's this gonna, is it. It's not going to end well. As I've learned time and time again. Yeah. You can probably guess my number one. Is it something I've already mentioned? Oh, it must it is, be yeah. Sancho, it's Sancho the Bailiff, of course. It's okay. Sancho the Bailiff. Go. So uh, I'll tell you something. I've watched Sancho the Bailiff twice, I think. So mm-hmm. I, wa- I, re- I rewatched it like um, maybe a month or so after we watched it. Just wanted to see how, because it really, uh, first of all, like yourself, this was kind of a eat your vegetables sort of movie for me. You know, <laughs> this is good for you. Watch your, watch your uh, 1950s Japanese movie there. Take it away. But yeah, I was sort of instantly gripped. So th- it's this family story, essentially, where this mother is out with her children and all of a sudden not out with her children sorry they're running away from a war basically something like that and then yeah yeah exactly so she's out with her children and then this terrifying witchy woman (laughs) convinces them to get into a boat and then her children are just fucking taken away and it is i mean this is the thing is like I think it's because it's because they're shot in a different era. Like, let's say contemporary films of the black and white era, even if they're the most realistic things in the world, they seem very otherworldly to you, if you get my meaning. But maybe it's because of the layers of this is another language or another time that seems so much more realer than, I don't know, let's say the likes of fucking Casablanca or something, let's say. Mm-hmm. And that from that scene 
when the children get taken away from the mother on the boat, I just, you're, my, for me, my heart went into my mouth. And I was like, it was so real. It, it's not played for pantomime at all. That old lady is really scary because she plays really nice. And then all of a sudden she's with these pirate guys. They get sold into slavery. The slavery seems realistically horrific where they're living. People get like regularly punished and branded for escaping. The brother eventually goes bad. The sister never loses her faith. Talked about it already before, but yeah, stuck with me so much. Um, it's on Andy's Five as well, so it's a, a big recommendation in general. But I said it the week it came out. I said, I, I said, I think this is one of the best films I've ever seen, and I, w- I would stand by that. I, th- I think it's, it's, it's mad that it's not better known. It's mad. That's, you think of it. I think we talked again when we when we watched it. But like some of the other things that were being made in 1954, you know, like stuff from the U.S. A lot of films from 1954. You watch them now, and they're it feels like they're really holding back. Yeah, you know, yeah, they're 100%. not. They're not showing. Yeah, yeah. And you watch this film, and you're like, "Holy hell! I can't believe they're showing that." Like, yeah, yeah. I can't believe they're taking on something so dark in a way that feels modern, even though, like I said, it's seventy years old. And do you remember? Do you remember the scene at the end where he he he's about to find his mother, and then he goes into a whorehouse, and this whore is like, "Hey, do you want a blowjob?" <laughs> pretty much. And he's like, no, I'm trying to find my mom, you slag. Yeah. You slag. That was the and one then, misstep in the film, I thought. I thought they should have explored <laughs> that part of the plot. He was like, well, it's been a tough journey. Wait a minute. He's t- like, wait, I got half an hour of screen time to spare. Let's see where this goes. <laughs> it's, it's, this is another wait. thing to tell, tell people that they should try it. It's 90 minutes, I believe. It's quite short. Yeah, that's uh, right. So, it's super yeah. short. So there you go. And that rounds out our top five. Nice film of all time. You got honorable mentions? I got two. Uh, and they're multiplying. Friends of Eddie Coyle, that was one. That's one of mine also. I think, uh, again, it was just one of these things that we've skirted around. It's not that well known. It feels like another one that's kind of, people who are really into films and really into 70s films know it, but outside of that, I mean, you've got this Robert Mitchum crime My favorite Mitchum performance, Directed by Peter Yates, who's well-known from uh, Bullet, but not not so much else. Yeah, you've got Robert Mitchum playing this really down-and-out drunkard who's sort of, uh, he's past his prime, he's just trying to keep it going, and then he's caught up in this gun-selling ring, gun-selling thing going on, and uh, with, with most stories like this, it doesn't end well. I think you can see pretty early on, it's not going to end well, it's, a, it's a, a sad time, but it's the characters that really sell this, and Loads also good Boston faces in this as well. as well. Your man from the Yakuza is in it. Uh, yeah, Richard Jordan. Yeah, yeah, Richard Jordan's in it. it Richard Jordan's excellent in this. Peter Boyle with his baldy head, as always. Alex oh, Rocco. Yeah. My big takeaway from Friends of Eddie Coyle is like, is like, you know why crime doesn't pay? It's because you have to do it with people who are, by definition, dishonest and trying to fuck yeah, you over. literally everyone is trying to sell each other out all the time. Oh, um, they're just... not the sharpest <laughs> tools in the box either. <laughs> no, 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 no. P- uh, uh, Jordan gets away with it well enough because he's uh, yeah because he's he's, he's supposedly a cop. <laughs> yeah, is he? Is he? A, yeah. Who's so? Who's the Probably. arms dealer character in it? You know who I'm talking about. Is oh no, guy... but sure, he gets it. He gets arrested as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone else gets done. Everyone gets arrested. Except What's for... It? Well, okay. Let's stay away. We're, we're doing plot things again. Yeah, yeah, we are, yeah. Friends of Very Coil is one for, uh, recommend Coyle for me was, as well. Yeah. I have one more. This is another one uh, featuring Ben Gazzara and Jimmy Stewart. Anatomy of a Murder. I did not expect this to be what it was. 
I expected this to be some, I don't know, Hitchcock type thing. But for the year that this was made, this goes heavy. To be fair, I mean, I was just talking about Sancho the Bailiff. When was this film from? 1958. Yeah, so again, similar time period. In fairness, there was a lot going on in this that must have been extremely controversial at the time. Really pushing against the code here, I would say. Um, Odd, James Stewart is very much a lawyer in this. He's not America's dad like in this. He's he's like... He's trying to win a court case. He he knows that uh, Ben Gazzara has probably done it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's, you know, but that's the life of a lawyer. George C. Scott as the uh, prosecutor, terrifying, quite mm-hmm. evil. Um, also, Lee Remick gives very good black and white hot lady in this because yeah. she's uh, always like being like, hey, Jimmy Stewart, I'll have sex with you. That kind of thing. That's her vibe. You know, there's that great scene where George C. Scott is questioning her about her panties. Mad stuff. Anyway. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I was a big fan of that. You've got one more honorable mention? Yeah, other one I would say 1986's Mona Lisa, the Neil Jordan oh, film. Oh, yeah, that was very good, yeah. There's this kind of generation of, um, or this grouping of classic British gangster films. I mean, we've already mentioned Get Carter. For Bob Hoskins, you've got Long Good Friday. Mm. And uh, yeah, and basically this as well. Mona Lisa yeah. charting the dark side of London in this time period, you know. Kind so of scuzzy. The uh, exterior to King's Cross, just one of, looks like the worst place on the planet. Pimps and prostitutes on the streets, just rough, 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 rough. I think I, I, I just remembered something. What's his chops is in this? Um, Michael Caine. Uh, Robbie no. Coltrane. Oh, uh, Lester Freeman. Mark Peters. Yeah, yeah Mark yeah. Peters is in this. Yeah, yeah. As a as a pretty terrifying pimp, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a scary man in this. Yeah, this is rough stuff, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Mona Lisa. Sharp recommended that as well. We got some bonus categories, don't we? Or you want to say more? Yeah, I just think we've seen. I mean, so many of the films, or basically all of the films on my list, are about the time and the place where they were made and what they show. Mm. And I think as we move into talking about <laughs> the films of this year i mean it's it's sad to say but they've lost so much of that there's so much of what made these films you know these films that we've chosen great a lot of that is gone nowadays. my film of the year brings some of that back i think okay really. so well that's interesting to hear what that is i wonder if we have the same film of the year to me there was only one choice go oppenheimer i can't go past that um, i can't i can't see beyond that i mean i've thought about some other things but me, that would have been my number one until very, very recently. And what did you uh, watch? So last week I watched The Society of the Snow, the new J.A. Bayona film. And I have to say, I was fucking blown away by this movie. I am, I, this is a... a, a, a oh, like, right, okay, yeah, the, the Andes. The, yeah, this was made into a film before in the 90, early 90s, I think. Sure, uh, sure, yeah, with Ethan Hawke, Ethan eating, Hawk, yeah, eating yeah. people. So it's about the uh, rugby team that crashed in the Andes, but this is based on Survivor's uh, stories, is that it? Uh, yeah, it is, um, with all uh, actually Uruguayan and Argentinian right. unknown actors, so which is what I meant when... Spanish here. So there's a, a few things that really bring this home for me. First of all, that accent is tough for me, but... As visual storytelling, it really doesn't get much better than this. You could not know a word of Spanish and follow this story. It, it, it really is that well told and well shot. Now, I've always been a fan of Bayona. I think his probably strongest film so far would be A Monster Calls. I was a very big fan of that. Still, I'm a big fan of that. But this, no, this is, this is the best thing he's done. 
I think this will get international recognition. I think this will probably get nominated for Oscars. So when I said, I think there's something that my film of the year is bringing some of this back, the combination of the unknown actors and the way they're used, the intensity of the plane crash. This is a terrifying sequence, the way they shoot the plane crash. It's absolutely, everybody in the cinema was gasping for it. It's in, you remember how, fantastic the tsunami scene in the impossible is like it just seems never seen and real never seen the impossible very good movie. no i don't know i did i think just because it was such a i mean Oscar i'm so movie? no I, i'm so familiar with the with like the story. what actually happened yeah just that i didn't want to see like a dramatized i didn't care about watching any dramatized version i don't know i think because i'd watched every single video of you know, people being swept away and stuff like that. I was, it just, it didn't look like it was going to do anything for me. I was like, I don't need to see you and McGregor and Spider Man. <laughs> it's good. It's worth the watch, but it's not as not good as Society watts, in the Snow. You know? So combined with the unknown actors, the the shooting in the mountains is like transportative. It is something else. I am, um, yeah, I can't recommend this highly enough. Really, I was b- completely blown away. Well, this um, is coming to Netflix on the fourth of January. Yeah, that's right. So no need to go to the cinema, folks, even nope. though it's it's very cinematic. It's very cinematic. I would recommend you watch it on your big old projector, Andy. I will do. I will do. I mean, for me, it was between Spider-Man, uh, Across the Spider-Verse, and Oppenheimer. I think Spider-Man was maybe the best cinema experience that I had over the course of the year. But I think it's let down overall by being a part one of two. Because mm. when it came to the end, I think a lot of people didn't realize it was a part one. <laughs> the audience reaction was just, oh... <laughs> but I think again, it was uh, extremely inventive. It was maybe the funniest film that I watched over the course of the year. Mine was and, Bottoms. Yeah, well, but that was I mean for like a for like a straight up comedy that would probably be number one. But Opie's, I think I think Spider Man is. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to seeing the third in the trilogy. Oppenheimer, I think. When I first heard that Christopher Nolan was working on a biopic. Uh, of Robert Oppenheimer, I remember just thinking like, how can this be cinematic? You've got, okay, Mm. you're obviously going to do the bomb test, but like outside of that, how is this going to sustain? Because we we knew straight away it was obviously going to be three hours because it's Nolan. So you're kind of like, how is this going to sustain the type of energy needed to make an interesting (laughs) three-hour biopic? And elements of it are quite straightforward in terms of storytelling. Some elements are, but I think Nolan did the right, I think he made the right choices. I think moving things around a little bit, um, telling multiple timelines out of order, which he's obviously a fan of doing. He likes to play with time. I think that works quite well here. Did you know the screenplay is written in the first person? No. Isn't that mad? Yeah. I would, uh, if any fans of Oppenheimer or or Christopher Nolan out there, he was recently on the... um, Script Notes podcast, and mm. uh, they did a, a probably the best interview I've heard with him. So I would I would recommend that to anyone. Yeah, I think I mean he was telling multiple stories. I think the court case elements work extremely well. I think yes. you create tension. I mean, at the end of the day, some of the criticism is going to be that it's cut like a music video at times. <laughs> You've got ten seconds, and then it's cut, cut, cut. It's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. constantly cutting, but like, and you, and there's soundtrack behind almost every second of the film. But in this like ADHD world of people, people, I'd certainly, I can't, I mean, I struggle to focus on things for long periods of time nowadays. You know, I'm, I'm the type of person who, even though I 
don't want to, I probably do end up reaching for my phone, you know, more, more than I would like. So yeah. I would take, I think, I, I can't think of a, a three hour film like this that just is, it just, it moves so smoothly from, from scene to scene. It's very watchable. I saw it in the cinema twice. You know, I was never you bored saw it twice. for a second. Wow. Yeah, I, wish I saw I'd an seen IMAX it once and then the second time in a small, on a smaller screen. Made close Both to a billion times. as well. Well, I, I played my part. Yeah, but I mean, it's, I mean, it's good to see that kind of thing. And to be fair, even though I wasn't a massive fan of it, Barbie instead of some yep. other dumbass comic book movie, it's good to see movies like that making money. I want to see Greta Gerwig rich. Barbie is not funny is going to be the hill I'll die on this year. I swear to God. <laughs> it's just not as no, funny I think as people some, fucking say. It's not as funny as people think it is, but it's still got some good comedy moments. It's also very ironic that one of the things that people uh, sling at women constantly is that they're not funny, which isn't true. But um, in this movie, it is. Again, <laughs> is funny and Barbie is not, which kind of sucks. Well, shall we move on to uh, the worst film of 2023? Well, the worst film of 2023 Wait, is actually, easy. I was just going to say, like, normally I would, uh, normally if I was doing this type of category, I would choose to say least favorite because, you know, it's obviously, it's completely subjective. I mean, no, there's I'll no, the no, wait, 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 let me finish. Is normally, <laughs> <laughs> normally it's completely subjective. But I think in this case, we do have a worst film of 2023 that we can both agree on. This is the worst film I've ever seen. <laughs> I hated this so much. Uh, we are, of course, talking about you people. You people. Kenya Barris's a ma masterpiece with what Jonah Hill. What the fuck is this? This is Lauren nuts. London, David Duchovny, Nia Long, <laughs> Julia Louis Dreyfus, and uh, the amazing Eddie Murphy as a uh, racist. <laughs> as a racist. Do you know what's the, right? What, <laughs> Eddie Murphy somehow still comes out of this a little bit unbruised. Partly because he's done so much crap over the years, who gives a fuck? But he's also, I think, he seems like the the sort of person who's very okay with just collecting a paycheck. He's but still quite likable, in spite yeah. of how horrible his character is. But just in general, the, the seed idea for this. The, first of all, this film is kind of racist. <laughs> it's, it's a bit racist. So the plot is, they're, what, a nation of Islam, her family, and he's a Jew... Yeah, and so Jonah, Jonah, Jonah Hill is uh, gets into an Uber driven by Lauren London's character. That's right, isn't it? Or do they both yeah. get into the same Uber? I can't remember. Uh, who now. gives a fuck something? But like anyway, that. apart from that, Jonah Hill is um, a podcaster, and he podcasts with Sam J talking uh, about the, the culture. culture. It's a podcast about the culture, and it's <laughs> one of black the most stuff. excruciating. <laughs> Every time I've they say the culture, screen the culture, a podcast about the culture. Um, Are you so into he, the culture? He ends up so he's Jewish. He ends up dating this uh, young black lady, and obviously the families are introduced to each other, and they're completely different. At one point, he takes her parents to get like chicken and waffles. Remember that? Oh my god! <laughs> the most embarrassing scene in the movie, though, for me is the basketball scene. Oh, yeah, yeah. So normally, if you've got a character like Jonah Hill in anything, if he had to play basketball against like a bunch of black guys, he'd be terrible. But he's actually like, really good because he's into but, the culture. Yeah, he's amazing. He's one of the best basketball players of all and time. And then I play basketball <laughs> and I'm I'm really good. It's because he has a co-write on this, doesn't he? He does. It's him and uh, Kenya Barris who, who wrote it uh, together. Kenya Barris is best known for creating Blackish. 
and then the, uh, this is around the same time that uh, Jonah Hill's uh, texts to mean text to his girlfriend got released. So it was a tough year for old Johnny Hills. He's having a hard time. Is some of it is by of, of his own making, but mm. clearly someone who goes from like however much he weighed, like three hundred pounds, to like a hundred and fifty. That's you know, there's something losing weight is great, but you see him nowadays, and he does not look well. And in during the making of this film, I mean, in this film, he just looks miserable. Mad, yeah. He, looks, he mad. looks mad and he just looks like he's not having a good time. Then there's all the comedians showing up, collecting paychecks. Yeah. Sam Jay, like who's got a big part in it. But I mean, Sam Jay is a, gen, a, a funny person and she knows what's happening here. Like she like 100 percent everybody who's coming up, like Andrew Schultz is in it. Schultz, oh my God, yeah. Everybody who just makes their bit appearance is just showing up and going, yep, yep, yep. Can I get the check, please? Okay, bye. It's ju it's just such a disaster. God, it was it was excruciating to watch this. Yeah, I, I couldn't I believe I was watching it. It was very hard to get through. That was one where I was I I, I was worried I wasn't going to get to the end. Yeah, I remember. I, know, right? I think I think I had to open up a I had to open up a browser at the same time. I was like, I can't. I can't just mainline you people on its own. That's insane. I had, I had to, to hit myself in a frying bit. pan with the nuts to, in the nuts yeah. to make sure I was still alive. It was. This is a terrible, terrible film. Well, Not that was the worst film. One to bad watch. What the worst okay, film of twenty twenty three? But do you have a most disappointing film? Maybe something you were looking forward to that didn't match your expectations. Disappointed in Killers of the Flower Moon. I should have known what I was, but it's still. It was disappointing to see. It's also disappointing to see how much everybody is pretending it's one of his best movies. Like it's appearing like Empire and Total Film and a few other people, not Total Film, Little White Lies did like a top 20 Scorsese movies and uh, like put this like in the top five, which is just, you're lying. Stop it. It's like when everybody says, ooh, this soup, she is delicious. It's like, no, you just taste like soy sauce. You dipped it in soy sauce. Shut up. I don't know. Like the fact of the matter is, that the a younger Martin Scorsese would have made this film probably an hour shorter, I would say. I was talking with the enemy of the show, John Spillane, uh, yesterday about um, Killers of the Flower Moon, and he says you need. To, he says you need to get the feeling. The the reason it's so long is you need to get the feeling of them being together for so long. And he said, uh, and I I made the point that. Well, Goodfellas, in Goodfellas, that's probably more important to show the life of uh, Henry Hill and Karen together it, from start to finish. And that film is like two hours 40 and feels like much shorter than that. And he was like, no, it's not as important than that. So that's me shitting on John Spillane <laughs> from a height. Because I think I just think that's I, I don't I, I don't think I've heard a case yet or a, a reasonable case for why this is as long as it is other than. Martin Scorsese losing his abilities a little bit. Leo's character is so unlikable. To have to spend that period of time with him is 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 hard. It's I, like I you guess said, a total so many, dumbass. There's there is some argument for that. I guess people are saying like you've got to you know you've got to see how terrible it is, like the reality of it or stuff like that. But I just can't. I, no, I would rather not. I just think. I mean, you read the book that had a that had like a more straightforward structure, didn't it? Could yes, you've just used that. It re only reveals about two thirds of the way through that it's uh, Leo and Robert De Niro's character. Why not have a mystery element to? It? I guess. I mean, that seems like a reaction of the times, where it's like we need to make this very clear. Do you know what's also very disappointing is that for a period piece, it looks 
incredible. There are yeah. elements to this that are on, uh, one. Here's one thing that is such a there's such a thing as being too famous to disappear into a role. And Leo and Robert De Niro just fucking are. You can make them larger than life, but you can't dial them down. They're too fucking famous. And then when you have them next to those Native American actors who are really fucking interesting because you've never seen them before. They look like sort of real people. They they mm. transport you. The sets transport you. All the elements are there for this to be exactly my cup of tea. And then, and honestly, for most of the, I'll say this actually, for most of the way, it really, really works. But then between the arrest when they get caught and the final credits, there's a over an hour in there with the back and forth thing with the trial. Speed that the fuck up <laughs> is, is all I'm saying. Just speed it the fuck up. Brendan Fraser makes an appearance. He's very good in it. Jesse Plemons, good in everything. Lily Gladstone, as everybody said, She's great. Is st- uh, yeah, st- steals the show and they're not just being tokeny. She is actually really good. I, You know when people do their fan cuts, they do fan cuts of movies? Please, yeah. somebody do this. Like you watched <laughs> that this year, the one of Prometheus. Please. That's right. Someone do a cut of Killers of the Flower Moon and make it good because it can be good. Just I watch believe the trailer. it. Indeed, yeah, I just watched the trailer. Do you have anything you were disappointed in? Yeah, I guess I would go for Gareth Edwards, the creator. Because oh, have you I'm seen pl- that? It's, no, it's just on Disney Plus now. I'm going to watch it very soon. I think. I think if you imagine you got like Vincent Van Gogh and you said to him like. You know, you know what I want you to do. I, I want to read your stories. I want, I want to, I want to forget the forget the painting, shy. I, all I, I just want to hear what I want to read your writing. It's all he's written with a paintbrush, so he can't write any words. I just think like That's imagine a very funny if, image. Yeah, like if you've got someone who's like oh, an amazing visual eye, clearly a great visual artist. Don't let him write scripts. Right. Get someone else to write the script. It's so it's insane. Yeah, there's there's some of the images in this film are like it's stuff you haven't seen before, or you could argue. I mean, it looks a bit like sort of things like Blade Runner and and a few other. You know, there are a few other films that have some kind of similarities, but it it doesn't look like anything else that's being made right now. A beautiful, beautiful film, but it's completely hollow. The more I think about it, I think I liked it maybe a little more just after I saw it, but thinking back on it, it's just a waste of time. Every the most um, basic, basic story, horrible scripting, a waste every, of time. Every uh, criticism I've heard uh, leveled at this completely agrees with you uh, that even the ones that you know are being more generous to it, they're just like, they, they, they say that there are certain coincidences in the script and certain bits of dialogue that are just like, come on. I don't know how um, it made it past like a yeah, planning yeah, that's what I've stage. Heard. Imagine all the people who had to sign off on it, all the money people who had to sign off on it. I, it boggles my mind. Maybe we should talk about our favorite series released in 2023. Indeed, we should. You go first. I think this is a hard one for me. I feel like I haven't seen the best things, the most highly rated. I haven't seen Succession and I haven't seen The Bear. Madness which are probably a feature on most people's top five. So I don't think I'm best positioned to talk about this. If I had to choose the one series that was, uh, that that I felt like I had to watch every episode as it came out week by week was the last of us. But in retrospect, as I mentioned a few episodes ago, like when I compare it to the game, I just feel like, eh, I'd be interested to see where last of us goes. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it on a week by week basis, but I always felt, Maybe it was great for someone who'd never 
who didn't know the story. I'd be interested to know how those people felt about it, but I, I guess for having already, you know, seen the story told better, I, I, it didn't really hold up for me. The only other ones I'll give a shout out to are things I'm watching right now. First is um, Scavenger's Reign. Are you familiar hmm. with that? No. It's what is that? an animated show about a group of scientists who crash land on a planet. It's like 12, 20-minute episodes, and it's about them trying to get back to their ship so that they can mm. take off from the planet. This, uh, the planet is um, extremely hostile. It's, a, it's, it's a, like a really dark show. I've only watched about half of it, but people say it's one of the best one of the best uh, things ever. By again, the how long are episodes? The, about twenty minutes, and there's and what's the episodes. style of animation like? I'm trying. I'm I'm not great at describing um, styles of animation. Like a really adult looking, I guess. I don't <laughs> I don't know how best to describe uh, it. Serious, I wasn't. I wasn't a big fan animation. of. Um, I wasn't a big fan of the animation in Invincible, and I didn't watch the end of that show <sighs> for that reason. I feel like it's. I feel like it's got fewer frames than that. If that makes sense, <laughs> it's. It's. I'd say it's more arty than that. The first thing I thought while watching it was like, I don't think Donica will like this. I don't <laughs> oh think no! Because uh, I got excited there for a minute. Because I, well, one of the best shows I watched this year it isn't actually from this year. Was um, Arcane? Um, yeah. But the yeah. animation in that is. I mean, it's 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 big stuff, but actually, maybe that's what you want. One of my favorite shows this year is one of the one that I'm currently watching, but I'll I'll have to give it a, is is animated is um, Blue Eyed Samurai. Yeah, I heard about this, but I haven't got around to it yet. That's really good. I I really enjoyed that. But it, it so my number I've got a joint number one, and it's going to be uh, the third series of Happy Valley. Oh with yeah, the bear. Yeah. Um. Now we're big fan. You watched. The season three of Happy Valley, didn't you? No, no, I only watched the first season. I think I don't think I've even seen. You haven't seen it. What? You haven't seen the second season of Happy Valley? No, it's on the list. I mean, the things I've just caught up with. I I watched um, Slow Horses season three over the last week. So I've been focused more on. I forgot that's out. Yeah, I must give that. Is it? Same again. Same again. Some of the characters in that are so nasty. (laughs) It's the hardest part. (laughs) There's the mean, just the meanest people, but they. Everyone gets dealt with, so it's fine. Well, uh, yeah, go uh, ahead. do you mind if I talk a tiny bit Please, about the, the way yeah, Happy, Happy Valley ends? Uh, we'll try to stay away from plot spoilers. I will stay away from spo- plot spoilers. There's there's just this fantastic... Because <laughs> obviously... Well, no, I can't... Really, so, do you know Tommy from the, the, the antagonist? <laughs> do you know Tommy? Yes. Good friends. Well, What's his name again? The actor? Alex Norton. Is that him? Yeah, James Norton. Yeah, James Norton. So obviously he's in. Well, he comes back in season two and season three, right? right? So he features, and this it's the same actor from uh, his son in all three seasons. So it's a kind of a boyhood Mm. effect. You you get to watch him grow up. What's really really nice about it? It nice because it's a it's still fucking rough stuff. (laughs) Like it is intensely uh, difficult watching, but his performance of that character and it almost i swear to god it almost makes you feel sorry for him it's that sort of realistic because he's clearly just a fucking dumbass who did not have a good upbringing and thinks he's the who's an who's a complete fucking narcissist who sort of never has the chance and the great thing is the great thing is about um what's her chops character um 
Catherine, what she's called. I don't know what the actress is called. I remember the Catherine Haywood is the name of the officer. Can't remember the name of the actors, but um, she kind of gets that. And it's just I because I I rec really recommended this um show hard to my mother who um she worked in rough schools for years, and she said she like recognized the relationship that Catherine Haywood had with the James Norton character. The actress herself. is uh, Sarah Lancashire. Sarah Lancashire, brilliant, brilliant performance, yeah. So I, I would say catch up on that. It's it's so fucking good. It's so good. But oh. actually, I said joint number one, probably what would edge it. Ah, oh, I've got to talk. Fuck it. Succession is great. Really sticks, sticks the landing. But I don't think I've ever seen a show quite like The Bear. Having worked for years in restaurants, this is the most realistic depiction I've seen in that world. But it's not just about that. There's something about, there's a Christmas episode, right? which is a flashback episode. Jimmy Lee Curtis plays the mother. It's... And the father. <laughs> and the father, yes. <laughs> when I first turned this episode on, I wasn't having a great day. It was so fucking stressful, I had to turn it off. I'm not joking. I was I can't watch this right now. It just nails that. It's just people talking over each other, just, <laughs> it's just shouting stress. But then there's also moments of like character growth and levity in it cousin is the uh, uh, he's played by uh, the guy who betrays them in um, Andor yeah, which yeah. was our Ebon, bit of show Ebon Burt Bacharach <laughs> there we go yeah, yeah Ebon Burt Bacharach exactly <laughs> um, he had like his character just gets wonderful growth but you, they, they really just I don't know anybody who's ever worked in a restaurant will feel very much seen by this show uh, so yeah, that would be. I my think I said one. like the last time we talked about the bears. Is every time I look at any of like the images from it, or just like a little trailer snippets, I'm just, I just constantly think like, how can it? My brain can't comprehend how it can possibly be good. I'm you sure it's amazing. To, I know it is. I'm it. sure it's amazing. But like my brain oh, just so good. It's like two guys, and you've got like a sandwich shop or something. <laughs> I've seen it start to finish twice. I can't wrap my head around why it's good. Ah, uh, and I, you haven't watched Succession either, you fucking yeah, lunatic! I, I watched the first episode of that, and I was like, you know, I'll, I'll wait until it's done. It's one of those for me. I didn't want to watch on a week by week basis. I don't know. Do you know what I don't want to watch on a week by week basis? Is Reacher? Why? Reacher? Are, why are, I know. Why are they releasing? They're trying it to get like as that? much money. They're trying. They want. I mean, they've gone back to the old system of releasing because they want people to talk about things over the course of a week and build hype and they want people to not be able to pay for one month of amazon prime and watch the entire thing they want to spread it out to try and get more money out to people but the here's the thing because now because i didn't realize they were doing that until uh, i just yeah. so i watched like four fucking episodes in one day and i was mistake. like what the Where's hell the You're jonesing so now i'm just waiting until it's done because i can't do that again it was it was too much of a bummer but yeah. it's, it's suffice to say listeners uh yeah it, alan richardson more is the same Oh, it's so good. It's so fun. You wanted to shout out some other things, I believe. Yeah, I had favorite album and favorite game. I have another so couple of podcast these. recommendations. Uh, yeah. One of them is actually done by Ryan Johnson's wife. Mm. I've been uh, really, really enjoying You Must Remember This. So this oh, is yeah. a kind of a documentary, audio documentary podcast about the history of cinema. And this year she's brought out one on 
the evolution of sex in movies in the 80s and 90s. And it's, Mm. honestly, it is so well made. And she definitely very much wears her politics on her sleeve as well. Reminds me an awful lot of uh, the sorts of people who taught me postmodern philosophy in university. (laughs) She comes from that sort of school. But the thing is, is like, despite the fact that I disagree with a lot of that philosophy on a major level, this this podcast, how much I love it, would be testament to the fact that I really don't mind if the stuff is done well. I can digest it. Do you know what I mean? If if it's not like, for example, you know, Knives Out Two, Glass yeah. Onion. Like I, the, again, I kind of miss the miss the. <laughs> this happened to me because I give people too much credit. I thought he was kind of doing a parody of himself on that one, but it turns out he was just being no, just just being, being like just dumb, Elon like Musk, just very Zuckerbergy yeah. type people, yeah. Just very dumb, uh, preachy, liberal nonsense. But you must remember, this is not that. It is intellectual. Really makes you think. I'm. I, I enjoy every episode more than the last. I, I look forward to it. And also, will say I've gotten really into the um, Script Notes podcast, which is another mu- movie podcast. Uh, Craig Mason of um, What's Its Chops, for the Last of Us, Last and of Chernobyl, Chernobyl fame, and also Chernobyl. superhero movie, and. Uh, then uh, the guy who wrote the Hangover movies. Oh no, is that Craig Mazin also? Yeah, I don't know. Mazin worked on the Hangovers. I think the guy who wrote Snow White and the Huntsman. Whatever, they're both screenwriters. They're good to listen to. They have good guests. And they like, for example, a, a recent episode was a uh, How would you make this a biopic? And they talk about like for the the, the likes of Henry Kissinger and Ruth ba- uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and they have paired beforehand how they would break down their the the life in in order to make it a, a good story to tell so that's two very interesting movie podcasts that i by the way is also those guys kind of wear their politics a little bit on their sleeves as well is there anybody in hollywood who isn't no. a bleeding heart liberal no well yeah they're kurt russell vince vaughn <laughs> clint eastwood maybe i don't know ben shapiro we need you <laughs> okay I'll, that's that's for you indeed enjoy I, uh, so game and uh, and album. Well, which are, yeah, okay. I'll start with the game first. I mean, I have played. I've only played a few things, but they happen to be some of the uh, the most highly rated of the year. Spider Man Two, which I talked about a little bit before, is excellent. I think the storytelling that you're able to do with games. I think the Spider Verse films have kind of touched on some of that. Is just there's a level of storytelling that you can do when it's not live action. And li- the live action Spider-Man films over the last few years have been fine, but obviously there's like mm. comic book, really, really comic booky elements are tougher to pull off. So I think the Spider-Man 2 game, aside from the last fifth, which it goes a bit haywire with the like, this game Multiverse? features... No, it's uh, Venom. Venom stuff, but you get, uh, without spoiling anything for anyone who's going to play it, you get lots and lots of Venoms multiple venom characters and it's just it goes a bit sort of crazy but still overall it's very very good craven is the other main baddie who's handled really raven well. the hunter yeah have you seen the trailer for that movie it I looks wildly did. bad jc chandor's uh craven which will be very exciting to see so anyway spider-man 2 is solid but yes. uh, the other game that i'm currently playing is uh alan wake 2 Oh, right. I've only I've seen the cover of this vaguely. This is like a novel that you play, something like that, right? Basically, so like I not that long ago, I mentioned that I played another game from Remedy from 2018, which is called Control, which I said was like Twin Peaks meets the X Files. Alan oh, Wake yeah, Two, yeah, yeah. Alan Wake Two is like Twin Peaks meets uh, True Detective season one. 
Oh, nice. So you you control two characters. You're Saga Anderson, who's an FBI agent who's going through a lot of Twin Peaksy type stuff. And then you also play Alan Wake, who's a novelist who's trapped in this story world of his own writing. It's sort of Stephen King style novel. Sounds spooky. Spooky, but it's also it's it's very it's really 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 weird. It really like Lynchian levels of weirdness, but also genius, like things that you have never seen before. It's it, are you playing it, this on the PS Five? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I so, want um, to get a PS5 to play Baldur's Gate 3. Yeah, well, see, that's the game that I've missed off from this year. I haven't played that yet, so I think that's most people's game of the year. But aside from that, I would uh, highly recommend Spider-Man 2 and Alan Wake 2. Cool, and what album? I think music's a tough one because most people end up with their, their tastes become fossilized when they hit like about 30 or 35 or something. So Don't I know it. So it's hard. It's hard to branch out. It is. Into, and to and to listen to anything new, I listen to a lot of albums on uh, on a lot of journalists top ten lists. I just flick through a few songs and go like, "What the hell is this? What's, <laughs> yeah, what's these know, shenanigans exactly that what you're you trying to sell to me?" I used to be with it, and then they changed what it is. The one album list that always kind of lines up with me a little bit, not with everything, but a little bit is um, the the Rough Trade 100. I always find good stuff on that. Just if you're looking. Fair play. Uh, well, these both of these albums that I enjoyed are on most journalists' top 10 or top 20 list, definitely. Okay. The first one is from the only band I think I've seen live this year. That's Wednesday's album, Rat Saw God. Uh, Wednesday mm. are basically like if the Pixies were a country band is probably Ooh. the easiest way to describe it. And uh, as I said, one of the only band I think I've seen live this year. But if I had to go for my, my, my number one without doubt would be Sufjan Stevens, um, because I think... I've heard that's very good, yeah. It's his, yeah I'd say it's his first proper follow-up album to uh, 2015's Carrie and Lowell. I think this is like the first proper, 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 proper album that he's done. Uh, and it coincides with his partner dying back in April, which oh, no. is also when he came out, which is but kind of think, a rough way to when, have to do it. Do you think when... Um... So your partner dies and you're someone like Sufjan Stevens, a bit of you goes, well, ka-ching. Yes, that's, yeah, that's going to be a great album. <laughs> that's a terrible well, sort thing to of, say. It is, it is a horrible thing to say, but I mean, he's certainly leaned into creating great art out of tragedy, as, as real artists do. Uh, well, I'll tell was, you, whenever I listen to Sufjan Stevens, I enjoy it, but I look at him and his albums the same way you look at the bear, and I'm going, how can this be? <laughs> <laughs> how can this be good? But then come that on, album, he's... Come On, Fill the Illinois, I think is amazing, and yeah. I, I mean, I would I'd highly recommend this. Uh, the other thing that happened to him is he got Guillain-Barre syndrome. He was diagnosed... Part of you gets paralyzed. I think he his his arm was paralyzed. He had to learn how to walk again. Jesus. So he he was in hospital for that back in. Do you have an album about that? Yeah, that'll be the next album. But he basically like he couldn't play the guitar anymore. I I I'm not sure how he's doing at this point. I guess he's like been learning how to walk again. But uh, but yeah, that was that's my that's my less fun album of the year. But. The thing about that, you know, there's like certain bands that you listen to or artists where the mm. first time you listen to some of the chord changes, at least for me, I listen to certain chord changes and I'm like, oh, why did you choose to change to that chord? That's weird. It doesn't, that feels like a weird, terrible choice. And it's because I think your brain is trying to, your brain is so accustomed to like simple structures and chord and chord structures where you're like, oh yeah, no, that's, that's the logical leap because it's like, like a sort of pop 
simple way to do it and you're like yeah that's good yeah and so the first time you see where someone breaks it a little bit you're like i don't like that and then the more you listen to it you go like no that's genius that's how it should be it's, it's this albums and a lot of artists who grow on you over time you make me wish i was more musically minded wow uh, i have i suppose probably um one other th thing that i would recommend is uh you know, it's such a fantastic thing where you, when you find something new that'll make you laugh on the regular. When I got into uh, Matt and Shane's secret podcast, that was a big one for me. But lately, there's a comedian who does a lot on Instagram. I think his stand up is good too, but mostly it's this internet show he does called Finn Taylor, who is as lowbrow as it gets and very much, as I'm sure you'll know, up my alley. Just, I, 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 so he had this internet chef called what will he cook on his show and what will he he does quirky stuff and, and he said this thing to me goes oh, so a lot of the stuff the cooking instructions you do like a uh, uh, body bodily functions you'll say like uh, the piss of a lemon or uh, the vomit of a bee or a uh, hot shit out of my ass <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, if anybody's looking for a regular laugh, almost every clip I see of him makes me laugh more than to that level or more. I So I, I really, really enjoy his stuff. Yeah, everything he does looks like it was personally like handcrafted for you. <laughs> it's entirely <laughs> bespoke for you. Like you'd like called him up and gone, hey, can you make this thing for me? And this is what I want. It's so true. It's so true. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to just do bits of this. People should go check out Finn Taylor. I can't stop laughing when I think about them. I guess very, the very last good. thing to say is, is there anything that we're looking forward to in 2024? Movie-wise? I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't think about this. What are the... Uh... I want to watch more of the new stuff that co that comes out um, because a lot has got past me this year. Um, I just like to go out to the cinema a little bit more, I suppose. But I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, just looking here, Doom, I, Doom Part I, Two. Yeah, Doom Part Two. Definitely, I'll rewatch the first one prior to to watching that. Alex Garland's Civil War. I'm looking forward to. Yes, that looks good. Also, I watched the trailer for that. I try not to pay. I try not to focus too much on it. I'd like to a bit of a surprise. Nosferatu, the Robert Eggers. Yeah, the Robert a Eggers film, film is due out next Christmas. <laughs> next Christmas. Yeah, Alien Romulus. Is that a new Alien movie? Yeah, the Fede Alvarez take on Aliens. It's um, is his own his own story mm. that uh, Ridley Scott apparently signed off on. Furiosa. Fu Furiosa, of course. Gladiator Two. One. Joker Part Two, yeah, I'll, I'll, a, lot a lot of stuff. Sequel, out here. A lot of sequels. Madame Web, obviously, that's going to be Roadhouse. <laughs> yeah, Roadhouse remake with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Conor McGregor hmm. in a last ditch attempt to make people like him. It's probably not going to work. He um, should be in a film called Chode House. Yes, he should. Why does he have a tiny willy or something? I don't know. You know about just think. Well, you often know about internet Chode rumors House. that uh, that I don't know about. Nick Mullen is gay. That. Well, that one's accurate, but. Do you believe that? Yes. Should we sign off 2023? Yes. Yeah, in 2024. Yeah, let's do it. Indeed. All right. Hell uh, of a year. Hell of a year. We'll be taking a little break for a little while while I get my driving theory in line. And then we'll be back hopefully in about a month or so uh, with um, Throne of Blood and what was the other one? Uh, Ikiru. Ikuru, yeah, we're going to watch two Japanese classics. These might be our number one and number two Sancho, for next year. Sancho the Bailiffs of, uh, of 2024. 
Indeed. Uh, there was all the movies we talked about, except you people, we highly recommend. And even you people, no, actually, it was good of you to point out that we weren't being subjective. That's the worst film ever. Yeah, no, that is a, was the worst film of 2023. And there's, I'll hear no argument. People will probably find uh, it more difficult to force themselves to uh, watch Sancho the Bailiff. So I would say the big recommend is Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Probably people will get more into that. Yeah, easily. that one's in color. Indeed. And yes, they're it is. speaking English. And that's all we have to say, I think, is it? It is. All right. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. And Andy, I love you. Love you too. Bye. Bye.